You're listening to the sermon podcast from Meadowbrook Church in Cheyenne, Wyoming, with Pastor Keith Miller. Good morning. Good to see y'all, y'all. All right, I did this the first service. I'm doing it again. All right, we got to do a selfie. All right, smile. And this is smooth, going smoother than it did the first service. Let's see. All right, here we go. Smile, wave, say hello. I'm taking a big, long photo to get everybody in here. Good job. It's good to see you. Well, you've been seeing me on the live, the live stream, but like, you know, I don't have to stare at it. So I said to, the, to the, uh, everybody on the, in the worship band and involved in the service that last week and the weeks before that, I ignored everybody that was in the room and paid solely attention to the camera. Now this time I can ignore everybody who's watching and pay attention to everybody who's here. I'm joking. Live stream, I will pay attention to you. Don't worry. Uh, well, if you're joining us on the live stream, welcome. We're glad that you're able to join us. Uh, and those of you who are here, we're, th- we're thrilled that you're, that you're here. I wrestled with what to do with the sermon series, you know, living life in a COVID-19 world. And uh, I wasn't sure if I should continue with Romans or, or change it up a little bit. I decided, and I really believe this is a Holy Spirit thing. I really believe the Holy Spirit was leading me to do this. Is just stick with Romans. Uh, Romans really, uh, it was written in a context during a time of great suffering for the church. And it just has so much, so much to say to us, especially in our context in a, in a COVID-19 world. And Romans 8, like I said last week, if you had not had the opportunity to listen to or watch Uh, The sermon from last week, you know, I encourage you to do so, you know, this week sometime. But Romans 8 is considered uh, by some the greatest chapter in the Bible. And uh, I I don't know if I would say the greatest chapter in the Bible. I feel weird saying that. The whole Bible is great. But it certainly has so much to say to us that, that ought to encourage our hearts. So if you could stand to honor the reading of God's word. We're looking at Romans chapter 8. If you're watching on your live stream here, uh, go grab your Bible. Stand, and Please stand in your living rooms or wherever you are. Maybe you're still in bed. I don't know. Uh, Romans chapter 8, beginning with verse 18. For I consider that the suffering of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning towards or together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves 
who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groaning too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is, the mind, or what is in the mind, or what, I'm sorry, he knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own Son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised and who was at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. You may be seated. Oprah, Oprah Winfrey, the, uh, you know, the, the, the bastion of all truth and spiritual insight, not really, uh, said, said this. I came across this quote earlier this week. She said, there is uh, no greater gift than to honor your life's calling. It's why you were born and how you become most truly alive. And when I read that, I thought of the story that I read about with a group of guys who gathered together for men's breakfast and then they were going to pray afterwards. And the topic, of com- uh, the topic of retirement came up in their conversation. And in the midst of that conversation, we'll just call the guy Pete. Pete got excited, and he wanted to share with the guys a conversation that he and his wife had earlier that morning. And so he said, you know, my wife and I were talking about retirement, and, and she asked me, so what are you going to do when you retire? And he said, well... I'm going to watch TV and more TV, and then the next day I'll watch some more TV as I lay down on the couch. And then so somebody in the group spoke up, and he said, Pete, you're not going to live more than a year. And he was shocked. He said, well, what do you mean? He said, well, if your lack of purpose doesn't kill you at uh, first, then your wife certainly will. Right? <laughs> somebody said this. A philanthropist said this. He said uh, that a ship in in the harbor is safe, but that's not what ships are built for. 
you know, we're made for a purpose, for something much, much greater than, than, than this world could even imagine. We're not made for retirement. We're not made for safety. We're not made for comfort. We're made for something much, much bigger. Uh, we were made for a relationship with the God of all creation. And as we unpacked Romans last week, I said that there were six reasons why, and, I, and I'll die on this hill, six reasons why there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Uh, and, and Paul give, gives us six reasons. There's probably more than six reasons in this passage, but I I highlight six of them. Last week we looked at the first three. Today we're going to look at the remaining three uh, as to why there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Like, how do you know that there's no condemnation for the Christian in a COVID-19 world? Well, last week we looked at uh, the first three. You are not condemned because Jesus was. You are not condemned because you are in Christ. And thirdly, you are not condemned because you're an heir with Christ. You know, that all that belongs to him is ours. These uh, six, the six reasons that Paul gives us in Romans 8 are kind of like six manifestos, six statements, six, six things that you can, uh, that you can rest your, 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 your life and your faith upon. So reason number four is this. You are not condemned because death is not your inheritance. Death is not your inheritance. Like that, we are not, like the grave is not the last chapter of the life of the Christian. In, the, in verse 18, Paul says, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. The NIV translates it a little differently. It says, I consider our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Like, so what is it? You know, is, it is this glory going to be revealed to us, or is this glory going to be revealed in us? And the truth is, is the Greek word uh, for, that's translated to or in uh, is both. It can mean both. That there's this glory that's coming, that, that, that is our inheritance that is going to be revealed to us and it's going to be reveal, revealed in us. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 says this, and let's read this together. It will be on the screen. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Right? Like there's something waiting for us that's greater uh, than, than anything we could ever possibly imagine. That, that, that the suffering that we experience in this world is, it, it doesn't even, it can't even be compared. Like the greatest suffering that you can experience, let's just say death or, or cancer or whatever it is, cannot even be compared to the greatness of this glory that is waiting for the Christian. It is waiting for all those who have placed their hope and trust in Jesus. And that glory, friends, that glory is the resurrection. Like, like Jesus rose from the grave. The Bible says he was the first fruits. And, and we, his followers, will experience something similar to that, that we will experience a resurrection like his. And I wish we had time to go into it, but I just want to highlight a few things. Like, what does it mean for the glory to be revealed to us? 
Well, when we think of the resurrection, and some, some uh, have used the word to describe this resurrection uh, as a rapture. And we don't have time to go into it, but, um, but some call it a rapture. There is a time coming where our bodies will be resurrected. Those of us who are living, when that day comes, our body will experience a resurrection, and those of us who have died will also experience a resurrection. And what will it be like? Well, first it will be immediate and not evolutionary, meaning we're going to, have a, we're going to experience a resurrection, and it's not like evolution. Like it, will, it, will, it will not be a process to perfection. It will be immediate. Secondly, it will be physical, not metaphorical, meaning this is not something that the Bible describes it's, that uh, is, is a metaphor about something greater. It's describing something real and physical, it will be physical. You will receive a physically resurrected body like the one Jesus had. And thirdly, it will be eternal, not temporary. It will be eternal, not temporary. If you're writing down notes, here's some notes. Uh, I mean, here's some scripture references. For the fact that it is immediate, you can look up or write down 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. For the truth that it will be physical... You can look up Daniel chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. And for the, fact, for the truth that it will be eternal, you can look up Matthew 25 sometime, verses 31 through 46. So that's what, it, that's what will happen to us. That's the resurrection that Paul says is coming. So when it comes to the sufferings of this time, that's not the last chapter of your life. I say this in, in, in almost every funeral that I do, uh, particularly the funeral that I do for Christians, is that the grave is not death's victory dance for the Christian. But what about in us? What about the resurrection or this glory that will be, be revealed in us? In light of another passage, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 50 through 50, the body will be your body. Look that up sometime. We learn this, that the body, your body, will be your body. Some of you are like, yes. And some of you are like, no, I don't, I don't want my, my present body. Uh, there's good news. Two, your body will be a perfect body. It will be a beautiful body. And, yep, see? Woohoo. Like, like I, you know, I, I, when you hit your 40s, as you know, there's like no turning back when it kind of feels like when it comes to weight gain. I just... It's harder to lose weight in my 40s than it was like in my 30s. Uh, your body will be perfect. And then thirdly, your body will be immortal. It will be powerful. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Uh, in this world, you know, people are, are, are tend to be honored if they have a beautiful body, right? I mean, that's especially American culture. And they can have the ugliest soul and the most beautiful body, and, and those are the ones that seem to get recognized. Uh, and, and those who seem to have a beautiful soul but an ugly body, those are the people that seem to be ignored on this side of eternity. Would you agree? Uh, but with the resurrection, when we experience the resurrection, you will, your soul will be beautiful and your body will be beautiful. And to that I say amen. Like I, I wouldn't call it beautiful. I'm like handsome. And Paul says, regardless of what you experience in this life, it can't be compared to what's coming. I, I quoted Randy Alcorn uh, before, and I'll share this quote with you again from his book titled Heaven. He said, 
when it comes to uh, like eternity, for the non-Christian, for the non-Christian, for the person who does not believe in Jesus, that life on earth as they know it will be the closest that he or she ever comes to experiencing heaven. Think about that. And then for the Christian, life on earth as you know it will be the closest that you ever come to experiencing hell. Paul says, in light of the present sufferings, nothing compares to what's coming. Nothing comes, compares to what's coming. That, um, that the reason why there is no condemnation for the Christian is because death is not our inheritance. Life is. Life is our inheritance. That's why the Bible says, for the Christian who, who's experienced death, or for the Christian who's standing by the graveside of somebody that they love, that, that we don't weep. We do not weep like the rest of the world that has no hope. So that's the fourth reason why there is no condemnation for the Christian. The fifth reason that you are not condemned is because God is for your good. He is for your good. Like, you need to hear that. God is for your good. Not for your suffering, for your good. Now, don't get me wrong. God will use suffering in our lives to mold and shape us. Uh, a mentor of mine uh, described suffering as the fire, God's fire that he uses to burn the dross from our lives to make us more beautiful or to shape us more into the image of his son. Like, we have some pretty sad-looking trees in our yard, right? And earlier this week, I asked Nathan to help me with pruning some of the dead branches. I bet if you asked one of those trees if it could speak, uh, you know, would you like me to cut one of your branches off? It probably would say no. Right, like, like I, my, my weird imagination. Every time I prune something, envisions the plant or the tree just saying, "Stop it! <laughs> don't do that! I don't like it!" Right, and it's the same way we respond to suffering. Stop it! I don't like it. Like, if you, when you get to heaven and you have that conversation with Jesus, I guarantee you, if you ask Jesus, "Hey, how was it like for you in the Garden of Gethsemane when you prayed?" hours before you were to be executed. What was, it? was that fun? He would say, no, that wasn't fun. I, I sweat great drops of blood during that experience. It was horrible. But not for one second was God, uh, uh, did God set his face against his son. He was for his good and for our good. And so Paul writes in verse 26, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. It says, in light of, just like in verses 18 through 25, likewise, just as the Spirit helps us in our weakness. Listen, the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is not some therapist in your life who's just kind of warming up a seat in your, your life or taking up space in your life to give you suggestions. The Holy Spirit is God in, in, in the form of a spirit indwelling you and, and leading you and guiding you and helping you. Jesus said to his disciples, he said, listen, you want me to go. You, uh, when I die on the cross, I'm going to ascend to my Father, and you want that to happen because once that happens, I will send the helper to come and guide you and, 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 and lead you. The Holy Spirit not only serves as God's seal and down payment that better days are coming, he's also with us 
to help us. So I'm probably opening up, opening up a can of worms here by saying this, but I'm just going to say it. Uh, when it comes to the, the signed gifts, you, you know what I mean by that? There, there are gifts that the Holy Spirit gives to every Christian, right? And there are certain gifts that are miraculous gifts. They're called signed gifts. I believe that the signed gifts are still for today. I believe God speaks to his people. I don't believe that he speaks above the authority of the scriptures, but he speaks to his people. I've had prophetic dreams as, as a Christian. I, 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 the first time that happened to me as a, as a pastor, and it wigged me out because it didn't fit with my, the, the, the theological construct that I, I received in, in Bible college. Um, but I believe that the gifts of tongues are still for today. Now, we could talk about what they are another time. But what I want to tell you, I say all that to tell you this, that what Paul is talking about in verses 26 and following, the groaning of the Holy Spirit, is not talking about the gift of tongues. It's not talking about the gift of tongues. See, like in, in verses 9 through 11, we're told that the Holy Spirit dwells in us. In verses 14 through 17, we're told that the Holy Spirit leads us. In verse 23, we're told that the Holy Spirit is the guarantee that our adoption is coming, that our redemption is, is sure. And in verses 26 through 27, we're told that he is with us in our groaning. Did you notice earlier in chapter 8, the word groaning is used several times? It's used to describe our experience in the context of suffering. It's used to describe creation. All creation is groaning. You know what it's groaning for? It's longing for the curse of sin to be removed and for redemption to, to, to be experienced for the rest of creation. Like creation, which includes, how many of you have cats? Yeah, okay, a cat. I know this is hard to believe um, if you own cats. We've, we've owned some cats. Uh, even your cat is longing for the day when you will experience this glory that Paul writes about because because all of creation knows that there's something wrong with the world. That's why your cat looks at you the way that the, your cat looks at you. Like, it knows. It's like, there is something wrong with you. Um, and uh, your dog, maybe not so much. Your dog just has, it's just hoping for the best. Um, but all of creation is longing for you and for me to experience that resurrection that Paul writes about in Romans chapter 8 because it will soon follow because creation knows that there's something not right with the world. And until God fixes what's not right with us, he will not do that with the rest of creation. And, he, and, and Paul says, and the Holy Spirit is groaning. It's in, he is interceding on our behalf. He is helping you. He is guiding you. He is shaping you. He is holding you. Like, you, you, you know what I mean? Like, like uh, there's this Christian song back in the 80s. I don't even know how the church survived the 80s and 90s when it came to Christian music. But uh, I was listening to Petra earlier this week. But um, some of you don't even know who Petra was. Don't worry about it. So uh, there's this song. You know, and, and there's this line in this song that churches would sing. And it goes something like this, my Jesus, you'll never let me go. Or no, I'll never let you go. My Jesus, you'll never let, I'll, I'll never let you go. And what Romans chapter 8 is telling us is that uh, we, our hearts are fickle, and here's the great thing about the gospel, the amazing thing about the gospel, is that God promises to what? Never let us go. 
And the Holy Spirit is a guarantee of that. He's not going to let us go. And he's with us in our groaning. He's with us in our groaning. In the midst of my suffering. Even when I do not know how to pray, the Holy Spirit is praying on my behalf. He's praying on my behalf. And how do we know that the Holy Spirit is helping us in our weakness? We know because of verses 28 through verse 30. Like for some people, some Christians, these are uncomfortable, these are uncomfortable verses, but there's so much, so much here. And uh, if, you just, if you just embrace the truth of, of, of these verses, uh, it's so liberating. Like how do we know the Holy Spirit is helping us in our weakness? Paul writes, he gives us the answer in verses 28 through, through 30. Verse 28, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Now, I said this to the first, in the first service. That's one verse you probably don't want to quote to somebody who's grieving the loss of a loved one. Like, hey, don't worry about it. You know, God's working for your good, even though this sucks for you right now. Like, hey, he's doing it. Uh, that's a, that, that verse is very true, but we need to use wisdom in how we quote Scripture to, to people. He's working for our good. And how do we know that? Verses 29 and following. I mean, follow along if you're reading in your Bible. Uh, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. You You know what Paul's saying there? Hey, you want to know why? You want to know why the Holy Spirit is for your good? Like, or God is for your good. You want to know why? Because he is. And you want to know, you want a deeper answer than that? Because he loves you. Well, how do you know that he loves you? Verses 28 through verses 30. That's how you know. Uh, how do you know that, that, that um, he's for your good? Well, because, because of these reasons. We know that those who love God love him because Jesus became their condemnation. We know that those who love God love him because they are in Christ. We know that those who love God love him because they are now heirs with Christ. We know those that love God love him because the Holy Spirit is sealing them, indwelling them, and helping them. And then you ask yourself, well, why? Here's why. Because, because he foreknew you. God is for your good because he foreknew you. Now, you've got to understand this. I preached a whole sermon on this about a year ago, uh, so you can go on the website and look it up. We can only highlight this. So, so when, when, when it describes God foreknowing you, listen, he is not, like Paul is not describing this event that God looked down the corridors of the future of time and saw that you would eventually choose him, and there he predestined you. Do you know why I know that to be true? Because who created time? God. God created time. So who stands outside of time? God. God is not bound to time. So the point that Paul is making here is, listen, you want to you know why God is for your good? Because before, before you, you, even creation was even a, a, a blueprint, he, he, he thought of you. Like, he, he, you were in his mind. And as a result of being in his mind, he predestined you long before you were even a thought in your mother's mind. Because God predestined you, he called you. 
And as a result of him calling you, you believed in Jesus, and therefore he justified you. And because God justified you, he will one day glorify you. The point is, why? Because. It's like in Deuteronomy chapter 7. God reminded Israel. He said, listen, I didn't choose you as a nation because you had something to offer me. It's like you, you had no chips in the game. Like you had nothing to give. Like you were bankrupt. Here's why I chose you. And, and it's not going to be very satisfying, but this is the reason. I chose you uh, because I loved you. I, and he says this, I loved you because I loved you. Period. You want to know why God's for your good? Because he loves you. Period. And we'll get to, well, you know, is that fair? We'll get to that next week when we look at Romans chapter 9. You had nothing to do with the salvation of your soul except that when you heard the good news of Jesus, God was already at work in your heart and in your soul to mold and shape you perfectly to that point to when you heard the gospel, you were ready to believe it. And because you believe the gospel, because you genuinely believe the gospel, believe in Jesus, you can know beyond a shadow of a doubt that God is for your good. He is for your good. And because he's for your good, there is nothing, there is absolutely nothing that can can uh, 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 disqualify you of the, your salvation. There's nothing that can condemn you. Nothing. And then finally, the final reason that Paul gives us here uh, as to why you're not condemned, you're not condemned because you are loved with an everlasting love. This is, this is the, the point in the chapter where every time I read it, I just want to stand up and shout, like, amen. Not because of anything I've done, but because of everything that God has done. Like, what do you say to those who want the worst for you? What do you say to those who want the worst for you? What do you say to death? What do you say to the devil when he is, when he is uh, accusing you? The Bible says he is an accuser. What do you say? Romans chapter 8 gives us the words to say. You can stand up and shout in the devil's face, not because you do. Who can be against us? Who can be against us? What else can you say? You can go to verse 32. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Here's what else you could say. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. You know, who's going who's gonna to trump God? Nobody. Nobody. Like, you, you, God, God said he, 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 there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, and the reason why that is true is because he loves us, and nothing can change that. I mean, the Bible promises us that, that nothing can snatch us out of his, his hand. That's why I have said this, and I'll continue to say it. And this is why I sound so dogmatic, because I believe it. Like, this is something I will die, this is a hill I'll die on. There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus our Lord. End of story. End of story. So what do you say to those who would tell you that your sins are too great, that you are too far gone for God's grace or his mercy to, to, to touch you, to change you, to transform you? You tell them you know, this, that I am a product of the amazing grace, of amazing grace and the unfailing love of God, that Jesus took my place of my sins, my cross for my sin. Jesus laid down his life for the forgiveness of my sins. You shout from the rooftops. Verse 34, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. 
and who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for me. Like, here's, here's a newsflash, ready? This, and some of you already know this. Do you think that you are a better Christian today because you came to church? Do you think that you're a better Christian today because you read more Bible verses this week? Or prayed more? Your righteousness has nothing to do with anything that you've done. And everything that Jesus has done. That's the point of Romans chapter 8. That, that when God sees you, listen, and some of you need to hear this, when God sees you, do you know he, what he sees? He doesn't see your past. He doesn't see how jacked up you are. What he sees as he looks upon you with love is the perfect righteousness of his own son, Jesus. You want to know why? Because it is Jesus who stands on our behalf 24-7, interceding on our behalf. And when God sees him, he sees the perfect righteousness of his son, and that's what he sees when he sees you. Amen? Like, and, and I don't know what else can get you off of the metaphorical couch and propel you into mission than that truth. Who are you, Christian? You are a blood-bought saint of the living God, and when God sees you, he sees a son or he sees a daughter, and there is nothing that can separate you from his love. You know, we're going to sing a song in a few minutes, like in a minute, really. Um, when, when you are loved with an everlasting love, you can sing to your fickled heart, to your fickle heart, you can sing, who brings our chaos back into order? Who makes the orphan a son and daughter? The king of glory, the king above all kings. Worthy is the lamb who was slain, and worthy is the king who conquered the grave. Because you are loved with an everlasting love, you can get up in the devil's face, you can preach to your own heart the reality of, of Romans 8, verses 35 and following. And, and I want you to read along with me. In fact, why don't you just stand, like, as if you believe this, right? Let's, let's stand and read this together. Let's read it together and read it like you believe it. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen? Amen. I mean, that's, that's the truth. You know, and... and how is there no condemnation for those of you who are in Christ Jesus? Because Jesus became your condemnation. Because you are in Christ. Because you're an heir with Christ. All that belongs to him is yours in Jesus. Because death is not your inheritance. Life is. Because God is for your good. And because you are loved with an everlasting love. There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus our Lord. And when you're living, listen, when you're living in light of that reality, your present reality, I don't think you can sit on your metaphorical couch. It propels you to get into mission. I, I, one of the gifts of COVID-19 to the church is that it is reminding and hopefully has reminded us that the church is not the building. The church is us. And he has sent us out into a world that needs to hear that news.
the good news that all who believe in Jesus can know that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus our Lord. Thank you for listening to the Meadowbrook Church Podcast. For more information about our church, visit meadowbrook.org.